11FS offices in London for episode 134 of Blockchain Insider, the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you the US's first regulated crypto bank, Shopify joins Libra, and Sweden tests its e-krona. All this and much, much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by some fantastic guests here in the 11FS studio. First up, we're joined by the returning Matthew Pollard, founder of Artrax. How are you doing, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me back again. I know, you're like a recurring character. Um, it's, it's, we're going to have to like put you in the credits soon before you know it. <laughs> it's three times now, so now I want some kind of hat-trick ball or some kind of something thing to like commemorate. That. We should start getting people little badges and mission badges and stuff. That's, that's totally a thing. Uh, I'm making uh, Blockchain Inside a debut, but no stranger, of course, is the one and only Helen Disney. Sorry, I always, get, I always want to say Dinsey for some reason. <laughs> so, people do for some yeah. reason, yeah. Uh, Helen Disney, founder and CEO of Unblocked. How are you doing, Helen? Very good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to make my debut. I really appreciate you being on the show. Tell us a little bit about Unblocked and the wonderful things you guys do. So Unblocked is a platform for education, events and research about blockchain, how it's applied in different verticals. So we bring together the best projects that are doing things in areas like healthcare or public services, energy markets, creative industries. So actually lots of things outside of financial services. And we introduce um, those stories and those projects to people from mainstream business audience who want to learn what's going on, what blockchain is and how it can actually really be used in the real world. Can I say how great of a name Unblocked is for education <laughs> around blockchains? It's like, yes. Uh, I do love it. And then my dad said to me the other day, you know, he had trouble with some leaves in his pipes at home and he was going to give me a call and see if Unblocked <laughs> could come to the rescue. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Thanks, that, Dad. That yeah. the old uh, Google machine. It yeah. Gets but a bit um, weird. the other thing that we do as well as the um, events is that we launched a project about a year ago called GovChain, which I'm the co-founder of, uh, looking at uh, mapping the regulatory and policy environments um, of uh, countries around the world that are looking to implement blockchain and digital assets. And I think that will probably come into our conversation today is how is that impacting will. on the actual adoption of these technologies. Um, and what we try to do is create a sort of traffic light system. So we looked at different countries where their public sector was implementing blockchain within government to see how they're doing, whether they were sort of a skeptic, whether they were an explorer, just sort of looking at what's going on, or whether they were actually kind of an adopter doing things and really pioneering the technology. I'm sure the China word will come up at some point I'm during sure this. But let, before we get to that, actually, first story is, is more related to the US. So this story comes to us from Cointelegraph, and it's about a blockchain pioneer building the first crypto-native bank. So um, industry veteran Caitlin Long, uh, who's former Wall Street exec, has been helping Wyoming for quite some time. The, Wyoming has 13 different blockchain laws. And actually, that by taking advantage of those laws, they've been able to establish the first crypto-native bank with a capital B uh, in the US. So uh, Caitlin is preparing to apply for a special purpose depository institution charter, SPDI or Speedy. <laughs> well <laughs> done for name. spitting that out. Yeah. I don't that's know if that's mouthful. actually the acronym, but I want it to be called that now. Uh, the future bank is called Avanti, which means forward in Italian, and will be focused solely on providing regulated services for digital assets and aims to open in 2021. Uh, and in a Twitter thread with 29 tweets, um, one of them explained that a critical piece of US market infrastructure is missing a regulated bank that can act as a bridge to the Federal Reserve for payments and offer custody for big institutional money in capital letters. Whilst this is a step forward, uh, Caitlin also noticed that the special purpose depository law has stringent regulatory requirements, but under Wyoming state law, uh, SPDI banks must keep all of customers' fiat demand deposits as liquid assets and cannot lend. Whew. So it's a non-fractional bank. Yes, it doesn't get to lend any of the deposits that went in. So it's going to be interesting to see how it makes some money. Yeah, um, sure. What were your thoughts when you saw this, uh, Matthew? Uh, it's very interesting to see. I know Wyoming has crypto-friendly banks, and there are other crypto-friendly banks in the US, like Silvergate and Signature. But well, so this was going to be my point. They're yeah. not the only one. This this That's wouldn't correct. be the first crypto-native bank in the US, would it? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's uh, perhaps as Maybe lots of these announcements... Maybe it's crypto-native, but it's not e the first crypto-handling or helpful. Exactly. And I think as with lots of these press releases, it's the way they use the terminology perhaps has a meaning that is broader because they want it to be that way. But actually, when you look under the hood, you see what it actually means. And I think what they're pointing out here is they have this integration uh, a piece with Blockstream. Yes. So they'll be handling fiat cash and they're a non-fractional institution. 
that's pretty standard stuff. But on the crypto side, on the Bitcoin side, the integration and use of Liquid to um, perhaps offer to their clients cross-exchange settlement, things like that, that's never been done before. And Liquid is a product from Blockstream that allows uh, kind of that one-stop shop for digital asset custody and a whole whole bunch of stuff around it. So actually, that's the bit that's new, new here in terms of... And what would, what that might that mean for somebody um, in financial markets? If I'm an institution and I'm buying and selling crypto, what does this give me that I didn't have before? Uh, good question, because if I was a big institution buying and selling crypto right now, I could go to BitGo, and mm-hmm. BitGo could, could settle... Uh, my trades off exchange across multiple exchanges. So I think it's it's another option for an institution. Um, if I were an institution, I would want to bank somewhere and put my assets somewhere that was uh, licensed and regulated, not just at a state level, and perhaps had a large enough balance sheet to give me some um, give me some peace of mind. Yeah, balance sheet building is not as simple as having a license. Yeah. And so you see that Fidelity can now custody your Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so if I was a big institution, they would be on my list of, of uh, places where I'd put it. This this is more challenging, uh, but Wyoming has been extremely crypto-friendly. Mm-hmm. And we've got equivalents over here in Europe like Malta and Gibraltar who are passing lots of laws to try and attack, attract blockchain-powered businesses. Uh, and I think a non-fractional licensed institution where people can put their cash and their Bitcoin can only be a good thing for the space. Helen, I was going to um, come to you on this point, the sort of Wyoming being the Malta of the US. I mean, Delaware in the US has been famous for being the place you incorporate companies for quite some time. Do you think Wyoming's got a real shot at being the place you incorporate crypto businesses? So I think they've definitely tried very hard to sort of stamp their mark on that. We actually looked at six different US states as part of the GovChain project and Wyoming was the only one that came out as a green, which is the adopter stage. Um, So they've sort of been called the kind of Delaware for digital assets in a way they're trying to kind of capture that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe some of the others, the sort of Rocky Mountain states and, um, you know, other um, states that we looked at were Illinois, Colorado, Ohio, Montana, um, Delaware, obviously itself. Um, but they're the only one that have really got this far in the sense they've passed lots of different laws, not just kind of defining um, kind of token taxonomy, so how you're treating utility tokens and this kind of thing, whether they're going to be exempt, you know, crypto-friendly sort of tax regimes, you know, so they've done lots of different things. So I think this is a really interesting, it's almost like the next stage of, of Caitlin Long has been pioneering a lot of this legislation herself and, and sort of negotiating with people to get some of this stuff passed. And now she's sort of all, almost moving into the demonstration project. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Let's actually exactly. see how we can test this out in the real world. So that's obviously going to be a very challenging thing to do, especially with the restrictions that are there. But I think there is a stamp of approval of having the sort of... Um, you know, whether it's state-based or federal, but, you know, the sort of government backing behind something, I think, provides an element of trust, which is maybe not there, you know, if, if a large institution, I mean, Fidelity is now in the marketplace, but if you think about BitGo, BitGo is not well known by institutions. So, you know, this kind of provides a more trusted framework, I guess, for those kind of Is the potential for a meet in the middle on some of this stuff? So Fidelity is sort of doing what they're doing with the laws they've got today, but then you've got somewhere like Wyoming that's actually pushing the boundaries of what it sits within the law and and from a framework standpoint, does that help create, create credibility in the medium to longer term, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, a lot of it's still about collaboration because this is such a new marketplace and Mm. custody has been one of the biggest missing pieces of the puzzle. Um, And it is that element of trust of, you know, we just need something that we can kind of plug and play for a large institution. We're dealing with very large um, amounts of money. It's just got to be everything ready on a plate, regulated, easy to use. You know, we know what we're getting. We can trust it. And that hasn't really been there. So this is kind of one more step towards that, I think. Yeah, I agree. And uh, like you see what's happening in Wyoming and other states is one thing. When New York State starts to pass these things and go one step beyond the existing bit license, I think that's when things really start to get serious. And I think pull that apart because New York did pass the bit license law quite some time ago, and and actually that was received quite poorly by crypto businesses when it was initially announced. A um, number of people have now applied for and secured that, but. Is what Wyoming's done more nuanced and more focused on the materiality of risk rather than here's a license, go 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 buy it? From my point of view, yes. Uh, it's definitely a lot more nuanced and they've been looking at it uh, from a cash point of view, from a custody point of view, also things like company share registers can exist on blockchain. So there's lots of layers to what Wyoming have done. Mm. 
And also the element of the legal, I think, you know, knowing that if you've got, for example, tokenization and you've got, you know, an asset that's been broken down and turned into a digital security that you actually own that asset, mm -hmm. you know, that's another part which you might be able to technically with the technology create tokens and fractionize something like a property, but does the asset owner know that they actually can enforce their ownership of that asset? You know, that's it's not really going to take off as a market unless you can say, I own part of this property or I own part of this. Mm. So it sounds asset. to me like there's a lot of um, sort of groundwork of the non-technology stuff being, they've broken the back of it in Wyoming and maybe the rest of the, the US and all um, other jurisdictions should really take a look at it to, to perhaps learn more. I, I think so. I hope so. Like we see with um, offshore jurisdictions in finance all competing to be the most attractive place to do business, mm -hmm. Wyoming have taken the lead in the US. Uh, and I think if they can pull it off and they can demonstrate a, a robust framework that attracts genuine business and genuine revenues and not perhaps some of the things that people associate with crypto, then other states will follow their lead. Interesting to watch. All right, next story. Uh, this one comes from our good friends at TechCrunch. Uh, this is about Shopify joining Facebook's cryptocurrency Libra Association, which is interesting um, because TechCrunch is still calling it Facebook's cryptocurrency. Sure. Um, but the Libra Association would 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 point to, would, would correct you and say this has nothing to do with this Facebook. Is a, this is a Swiss foundation. It's a Swiss foundation of which there are many members. Of course, just you know. Uh, Recap, um, there were a number of organizations that were involved in the Libra Association, so uh, Shopify, Airbnb, Uber, um, but of course e eBay, Visa, Stripe, and others have also left from being some of the initial partners. I think uh, MasterCard also left. Uh, but um, Libra did form. Uh, a number of organizations contributed at least $10 million to run a node. Um, so this is a well-funded, well-put-together uh, kind of organization. Um, and Shopify has now joined it. And of course, operating an e-commerce store can be impossible without a traditional bank account. Um, but that's very hard in developing companies. Mm. So if I offer uh, e-commerce uh, and there is no banking infrastructure to have a something else that's digital could be could be really, really helpful. So Shopify stressed that its reason for joining the Libra Association was helping merchants reduce fees and bringing commerce opportunities to developing nations. Shopify is a really interesting business. In uh, It's been doing a lot in the fintech space, Helen, that, that mm. um, sort of this just feels like an extension of maybe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting business because it, it came from a kind of, I think, the, the founder's need. He wanted to sell skateboards. That was the sort of origin of the company, and it sort of came from that. And if you think about that, in relation to the whole Libra project, you know, the idea that you could have entrepreneurial people in developing countries who have just got a business idea, but maybe they're just selling products mm. from the back of a van, you know, maybe they're selling products at a local marketplace. Um, you know, you could provide infrastructure to them through this project that wouldn't require any banking infrastructure mm. or any of the infrastructure we think of in Western markets. So I can see value for Shopify from the point of view, as you say, getting rid of credit card commission charges. That's a big cost to them. Um, it's a network effect for them, which they wouldn't have as a sort of payments network. And vice versa for, for Libra, it's an opportunity to maybe get into some markets that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And one of their big pushes with the regulators has been, look, this is sort of for the good of the world. We're going to help people in poor countries to have access to services. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, and I think that 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 last part, I think there's 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 definitely some some doubt around and dubiousness mm. about. But I think the the commercial incentive of there is limited payments infrastructure into in markets that we want to expand into as a business. Therefore, what do we do is an interesting question to play with. I completely agree. And uh, Shopify and companies like Shopify joining a foundation that will reduce friction when transferring value from, from a seller to a buyer uh, is the future. And the more that the foundation does of this, the easier the seller will be to the US government and other interested parties that they are actually building this for the good of the world. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, that always sort of clangs a bit when it's for, for the good of the world. I, I, I really want to come back to that commercial incentive because when Libra was announced, you know, it was... I think the the regulatory backlash was significant to say the least. Uh, but actually, now China has announced uh, its digital currency, and Libra. Uh, there are rumours that it's looking at being one to one backed with the US dollar. It potentially becomes the private um, sort of capitalist alternative to the state backed central currency. Um, and of course, we know Christian Carlo is looking at, at doing something similar as well. There have been some US dollar stable coins around for some time. Where, where 
where does Libra sit in that conversation as you see it as an observer, Helen, looking at the the world market of these uh, these potential central bank digital currencies, potential private digital currencies? Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because I think this um, report came out from the Bank of Inter- International Settlements yesterday. I haven't read it all, but, you know, it was trying to kind of create some sort of a rubric for how, you know, these central bank digital currencies might work and how they could be sort of framed, you know, and one was a kind of, you know, direct model, one was an indirect model and one was a sort of hybrid model where you'd have the companies. And I guess the interesting part is that, you know, governments, what is their role in all of this? Should they be sort of delivering these services or should they be sort of setting the rules of the game and creating a, a kind of infrastructure for this to operate for moving all of our currencies digital and this is going to be the future, which is, I guess, what all of us think is likely to happen in this room in this podcast, but, um, you know, should they be delivering or should they be allowing the market to deliver on top of those rails, you know? Mm. And so um, obviously there's concern that Facebook is a very powerful global organization, even though it's not directly um, running this, it's, it's got one of its subsidiaries on the, the governing council of the foundation, um, you know, it would have a huge amount of power. So then that ramps up the political impetus to, to central banks to look at doing their own digital currencies and and also, you know, to see that there's political threat from other parts of the world if, if they don't. It's quite interesting that in the US market, you have Visa and MasterCard, especially Visa is often seen as, you know, a big part of American political influences. Mm. You have mm. this payments network that is accepted globally, which the US government has a very close relationship with mm. and uh, can make an enact laws on mm. that visa incorporated yeah. um, that is based and headquartered in, in in the US. So there's there's a model there that's known and understood and that works mm. that could be made to work uh, in, in this example if it were to happen. And perhaps there's something in between the two. Um, if I was to think about this from a, a central banker's perspective, there's always the, it's almost like the word blockchain confuses the issue sure. to mm. a certain degree, yeah. because when people hear that, they think about Bitcoin and they think mm. about Ethereum. But actually, the central bank digital currency technology stack is almost a separate question to uh, what problems am I solving for society with um, central bank-backed U.S. dollars or, above that, um, fractionally reserve-created U.S. dollars. And then you throw policy into it becomes a whole other thing because what does what does government in the US government in uh, governments in Europe governments in China want from their central bank digital currency or from their from their money markets and their cash? The answer is quite different. It is. And one interesting thing uh, that I was told that uh, one central bank that shall remain unnamed are having internal discussions about lots of things around CBDCs. But one of the kind of threads they're, they're wrestling with is, is it a human right for every citizen of the nation that the central bank serves to 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 have them hold central bank issued currency mm-hmm. directly in their wallet with no... So with no clearing banks, no commercial banks, no other banks in the way that, that it's a direct one-to-one relationship. Well, this is the talk of narrow banking, isn't it? And I, I'm going to say it again. Sorry, listeners. Bank of England Working Paper 605 <laughs> um, is, is a classic on this because they look at the economic impacts of narrow banking, which is what you're suggesting, which is if we all have an account at the Bank of England or if we all have an account at the Federal Reserve or if we all have an account um, with the ECB, then what do I need big banks for? Surely everybody's going to want an account there. Yeah, sure. But then you lose the ability of commercial banks, which is the fractional reserve which is creation of money. So that has knock-on economic impact that is hugely significant. Mm. Uh, So thinking about that and thinking about some of those challenges is really, really interesting. And it kind of brings us to our next story because uh, in this one that came, we picked up from the block crypto but was widely reported, Sweden has actually started testing a central bank digital currency. Again, another one, world's first. Uh, World's first everything just, Please stop writing that in headlines. Sorry, Mike, I love you, but please stop. <laughs> Central Bank of Sweden has begun testing its digital e-krona um, and built using R3's Corda network, shout out to those guys, um, comes, uh, it, when e-krona comes into circulation, it will be used to stimulate everyday banking activities such as payments, deposits, and withdrawals from a digital wallet via a mobile app. Uh, the central bank added that eCrona would also reduce the risk of Krona's position being weakened by private competing currency alternatives. Um, the pilot project will run to the end of February 2021, um, and there's a maximum agreement period of seven years. Uh, the central bank also noted that there's n- currently no decision on how an eCrona might be designed or what technology would be used. The main purpose of the pilot was to learn. Um, 
I'm not surprised they've done this experiment and that they've learned how you could do it. Um, there, I, I imagine if I was in a smaller state with a smaller currency and it looked like a choice between central bank digital currency issued by China, the US dollar, potential euro, I might want to know what my options are to, to defend the sovereignty of my currency and defend the economic impact of my currency. Definitely. Uh, and from, from looking at it, uh, the Rix Bank have been evaluating this and working with people like R3 and Accenture since 2017. Mm-hmm. So shout out to Rix Bank. They really have been ahead of the curve. Um, and it looks like, given the size of that economy and given what the operations of the Rix Bank are, a test environment powered by R3 where the Rix Bank has a node and then merchants and commercial banks and other kind of participants on that layer run their own node and then downstream from there you'll have individuals so the rix bank has the sole power to mint and burn ecrona mm-hmm. and then they they will distribute it throughout the system from there so i'm, I'm quite I'm quite fascinated to see how it goes it's going to be interesting to watch because we live in a world in which uh knowing how much money is in the economy for a central bank is actually really hard because there's not one answer to that question. Basically, you find out when the commercial banks report to you, uh, and money isn't one thing. This is like the the mind fuck of money, is that you start with, oh, well, it's what the Bank of England prints in paper and coins. It's like, no. So, yeah. What um, is money, really? Yeah, baby, don't hurt me. Yeah. No, <laughs> hurt me no more. <laughs> uh, but it... Then you've got the commercial banks who take some of that central bank money and then make up their own money. A banking license is literally a license to print money. Like, it's a a real thing. And then there's other people that create money, and then there's money over the top of that, and then there's money that only could exist in the future um, in in contractual form, uh, all the way up to M4. So what are we actually talking about when we say currency? Uh, are we talking about central bank money? Are we talking about commercial paper? And that, to me, feels like where the debate is in different countries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really difficult to know exactly what this pilot means. And it was interesting to hear your your sort of take on how it might play out as a kind of internal sort of test project to start with. It's obviously not going to be touching the consumer um, for any time soon. But um, they are, I think, looking to um, potentially extend this over about a seven-year period. Up so, to, yeah. it's, you know, it's quite a sort of long-term project. And Sweden's always been a pioneer in, in the kind of... Of, you know, cashless society um, idea. So I think it sort of fits their whole kind of ethos of innovation around finance. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, going back to your point about, you know, what is money and how is it going to all work? I mean, thinking of the bigger picture, you know, what where are the institutions that are going to kind of govern and sort of um, oversee a world in which we have all these central bank digital currencies? I mean, is there going to be sort of a um, equivalent of the Bank of International Settlements for you know, digital currencies and, and cryptocurrencies and how's that going to work? You know, so you start sort of getting into all these kind of convoluted, you know, sort yeah. of ideas because, um, you know, who's the lender of last resort when one of these central bank digital currencies somehow has a governance issue or, or fails or there's a run on a central bank digital currency? Yeah. You know, it gets really complicated. we've got an analog world that we've digitized and if money became truly digital, what would that mean? Mm. I think it's a super interesting question to play with. I'm, I'm going to link us to the next story because I think it picks up on the same debate. Um, so the Bank of England official uh, has said that a it's crucial for central banks to uh, consider digital currency. Story came from Coindesk. And this is uh, Chief Cashier Sarah John saying, um, actually, there are some uh, points in favor of state-issued digital currencies. Um, it is crucial for central banks to at least be doing their research before private companies dominate the space, definitely. Uh, shout out to the Libra guys for cajoling central banks, really, to, to getting this done. And Sarah said that uh, we think we need uh, we need to think as an institution about how we position ourselves to make sure society still has a broad range of payments that it can use with confidence. Also stating the importance of central bank digital currencies as an option in responding to major tech companies' efforts to develop stablecoins. But the Bank of England also warned that inaction may result in regulators being forced to play catch-up with private companies in the arena of digital payments, asserting that it's crucial to think about whether public or private sector is the best. And this was exactly your point, Helen. Um, Of course, in August, the outgoing... um, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney said central bank supported digital currency could replace the US dollar as a global hedge currency. However, with his term ending, it's down to his successor, Andrew Bailey, to drive forward what happens next. Between the lines here, a central bank digital currency is an option to compete. It might not be the only option. So it might not be a blockchain. It might not be um, a central bank issued token 
necessarily. So it sounds like the between the lines they're saying we need to compete with Libra, but mm. we don't know if the answer is a blockchain or a digital currency necessarily. And something that they operate themselves. Mm. You know, I th- I, I'd imagine there's very little appetite for the Bank of England to all of a sudden create a digital program where they are administering it directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then how does it actually work? How would they implement it? Would they get the top clearing banks involved in the program? They would create digital there, and then it would be up to the five clearing banks to distribute down. I'm not sure that would work either. Mm. So perhaps perhaps a, a dedicated private institution will need to get involved, but will need to be aligned with the Bank of England's goals here. Which is why I think the US model's starting to look quite interesting with Chris Giancarlo coming sort of in the middle of a debate between Libra and the Fed. Mm. Actually, you can go on this trusted middle sort of standard-setting organization mm. that could start to say, well, um, there will be many ways in which you could represent the US dollar digitally. Actually, how does that interface with, with the central bank and the payments uh, and clearing networks? That becomes an interesting space. It does, because if you inject a rent-seeking middleman, people will say this is diluting the whole message and the whole potential of the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, anyone can create a GBP or US dollar-backed thing. It's, it becomes hyper-meaningful when the, the central bank, the issuing bank, does it. So I think it's, there's a balance to be found there. But how much of this is just people reacting because Libra might do it, and how much of this is solving a real problem for society, consumers, businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think going back to the UK, we've always been um, sort of interested in this, but maybe a little bit more cautious than other countries. And there has been quite a lot, I think, of talking behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but not um, necessarily as much public facing commentary on on what was actually going to be done. And, and the UK tends to sort of be a bit more cautious about, right, let's look at all the options, let's research, let's kind of see what's going on before we kind of come out with a public statement. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, actually it goes back further than Libra. It goes back to to Bitcoin. I mean, you know, Bitcoin was, you know, the slogan money without government. And now we're talking about governments issuing their own digital currencies. So the power of Bitcoin's impact on society is is immense, really, because the whole concept, if you think back to the the original sort of creation of Bitcoin, you know, the, the whole reason we've got stable coins is because people have discovered that actually dealing with cryptocurrency has some problems, including volatility. And so stable coins has been sort of a, a hybrid solution of how do you bridge between, you know, these kind of innovative cryptocurrencies and the world that we have now, which is is based on cash, but moving towards yeah. digital cash. Um, and so it's really kind of the experiment of trying to use cryptocurrencies and then coming up with a hybrid of stable coins that's then led to this whole debate around Libra and, and sort of CBDCs. So I do think Libra has, in a way, you know, performed this function of creating essentially um, almost like a, you know, why are the companies joining this association? Maybe they're actually just paying what's a relatively cheap fee for some really high quality regulatory um, and advocacy work, which sure. will force um, the creation of a, a clearer regulatory kind of framework for the operation of, of their mm. future business models. Which is interesting. So uh, that makes me think about two points. Uh, if Libra is out there and sort of setting the pace and uh, central banks are reacting, but many of them are sort of taking this experimentation, we're not going to do anything approach, do they risk being sort of left behind because they're being very thoughtful and very thorough? Should should the Is the operative thing to, to take some action or do they believe that they're maybe their, their regulatory levers help them prevent that, do you think? I mean, it is it is quite risky. I think if you think about the sort of the risks of not doing it, you know, when you've got big, powerful players like China who are probably moving far faster and far more boldly into the space, and maybe they've taken a bit of a backseat because of the current public health crisis. But I'm sure um, the kind of technical and and policy discussions in China have moved far, far ahead of most of the European capital discussions. Which was going to be my next question, which is, what do you think? What policy objectives might you be able to achieve if you have regardless of the technology, you have something that looks and feels like a digital currency insofar as um, I can move it without necessarily, it It feels cash-like. I don't necessarily need a relationship with a bank for it to work. I have this wallet concept in which, uh, like a physical wallet, I can move this money, yes, into an institution, but also away from an institution and directly peer-to-peer. Is that something that uh, is a desirable policy objective? Is that something that's desirable for consumers and businesses? So the way I I split it into two, I think there's central bank creation of 
money and then having it flow into massive institutions, massive banks and taking it from there. Mm -hmm. Then the other side of the coin is, can policy, can central banks create a framework that makes payments easier for society? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's a lot easier to achieve the second one because I just can't see uh, the Bank of England creating something and ordering all of the clearing banks to all of a sudden have a digital capability yeah. and then distributing it downstream. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But like we're seeing in Sweden, I think in a, in a controlled enough environment, you can demonstrate running a distributed database, a distributed ledger, reduces enough friction that will benefit society as a whole. Uh, and I think that that would be the policy play for me. But then you've got an economies of scale question, right? So if it could benefit society as a whole, but all of the money and all of the transactions are happening over there, yeah. so what's, what's kind of the tipping point? And also, it's faster and it's cheaper, but it's also not being used at scale and it's not being battle-tested. So by the time we start putting in all of the policies and controls to be able to uh, start to battle test it and use it at scale, would, do we end up back in the same place? I think it's mm. an interesting question. seems quite a weird concept from the consumer's perspective. I think if you sort of step outside of our world, which is a sort of tech and finance world, you know, for a consumer, the idea of having a sort of wallet connection to the Bank of England directly is quite a weird idea. Um, I and I don't know if people isn't... really have that concept of, you know, what would that be for? Why would it be better than having an account with Lloyds Bank oh, or being yeah, able exactly. to yeah. use PayPal or, you know, any of the ways that they do kind of pay and finances right now. I mean, maybe it would help them with um, receiving government benefits or, you know, some other um, kind of government-delivered services, but sort of from a consumer perspective, is it useful for me to have a sort of Bank of England wallet on But I, I think if it, what if it wasn't a Bank of England wallet? What if it was a leather wallet? Um, and actually, it's a leather wallet. I have no digital equivalent to the leather mm. wallet. I have nothing that I can have cash that isn't held somewhere else. Yeah. That is mine, um, but that is legal tender, recognised by uh, the Her Majesty's government. And actually, that could be quite interesting. Uh, you have a question about privacy, transparency, and the grey market that, that kind of exists there. There are a lot of people that uh, are quite vulnerable in society that need cash, and cash is useful for. And you know, is your policy objective to remove the grey economy and, and uh, the grey market, or is it actually to support those elements of society in some way with technology that you would have at least a view as to the quantum of money, but you have a, an element of responsibility around the privacy of that, and would people adopt that and use it? I think it's an interesting question, but I don't know the, that anybody has a clue yeah, about mean, the answer. What's the equivalent of, of uh, keeping your cash under the mattress like yes. lots of people do when it exists on a blockchain? Yes. I'm not so sure. Yeah. I mean, I can see a government objective in terms of tax collection. You know, exactly. that would be whether you like that idea or not, it could be very attractive from a government perspective. Again, eliminating things like welfare fraud, being able to sort of have a more direct relationship with the, the citizen, um, you know, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, the, the issue for people who are not, I mean, this is come up a lot in Sweden, going back to the, the Riksbank, that um, there are people in Sweden who are obviously in the situation where they are in the cash economy and, and they can't really access the cashless society. Well, and would there be a temptation to start implementing rules that you have in the banking system, but on cash? Um, so, you know, the G20 has urged countries to adopt tough um, FATF or FATF rules on cryptocurrencies. This story comes from Coindesk. Um, finance ministers and central bankers from the G20 are pushing for wider adoption of standards to compel cryptocurrencies currency exchanges to disclose user information. Um, and this would be quite common in the world of financial services. Um, uh, finalized in summer, FATF's controversial travel rule requires virtual asset service providers, or VASPs, including wallet providers and exchanges, to share user information with each other every time funds are transferred. Um, the recommendation is designed to prevent terrorists and money laundering using cryptocurrencies to bypass controls and sanctions. Um, but whilst the FATF recommendations are non-binding, countries that seriously diverge uh, or do not um, adopt those recommendations essentially get cut off from global trade. So sure. they end up being there. Um, but actually, um, so uh, as you know, Global Digital Finance, Matt, was involved with uh, a lot of the work uh, with uh sort of a fat F mm. in uh, the, I think it was the V20 in Osaka last Correct. year, yep. where there's uh, the, now been a creation with IDAXA, GDF, and a number of industry associations to start to think about, do, does the travel rule still apply the way it used to? It's a, rather than um, the travel rule, you know, the intent of the travel rule is to prevent money laundering and terrorism, but the way in which you prevent that is by asking for paper documentation. Is that the right answer in a blockchain context? 
It's an answer. I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's, it's, it's entirely the right answer, but I do understand where the framework and where governments are coming from. I Absolutely. Think, I think after the after the explosive growth in 2017, I can I can see how, from a policy point of view, you see people uh, make money, lose money, the whole space grow, and it's not nowhere near becoming a systemic space, but it was put on people's radars. And so I think it's better than nothing. Um, speaking of somebody that just went through the FCA's crypto asset application mm-hmm. on top of our brokerage, custodian, and exchange application, I, I see what they're trying to achieve. Um, there is lots of crossover in the kind of AML D5 crypto asset application uh, compared to kind of just your traditional AML KYC stuff. So I see what they're trying to achieve, but I take the point that um, it's perhaps not entirely suitable when you consider what happens when you transfer a value from wallet address A to wallet address B. And I think that's it. It's the apples to oranges piece about actually with this technology, are there more suitable ways to achieve the intent of FATF? And and I think to be fair to the global regulatory community, they said, sure, just show us what that is and also comply whilst you're doing it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it can't be the case that uh, companies are allowed to facilitate the transferring of value for illicit activities. So I understand why they're putting something in place. Uh, and yes, if the industry comes up with a better idea, fine, then they, they will suggest it to the government. But you've seen, and just, just to stick on AMLD5, which I know is different to FATF, AMLD5, we saw companies in the UK literally shut down because they couldn't operate in the new environment. We saw companies in Europe move to Panama and, and, and other countries because they couldn't operate under the new framework. Uh, and that says something about that company, but also how it's it's just not entirely fit for purpose what's being put on them. Uh, and that's kind of the point. And there are blockchain forensics companies like CypherTrace mm. and Elliptic and Chainalysis and um, CoinFirm and many others uh, who can do a level of um, forensic analysis of where Bitcoins has been and where ETH has been. That is miles ahead oh, yeah. of what you can achieve in the traditional world of financial services. Yeah, I, I, I keep using this example when I'm talking to people about the world of crypto. The traceability and the amount of hops you can go back and the and the um, how coins have been used, how wallet addresses have been used and the coins that have gone through those wallet addresses is absolutely amazing and with the right tools is better than the traditional world. And if you pulled a £10 note out of your wallet, how do you know how that £10 note has been used five hops back, 10 hops back, 20 hops back? Uh, and with the implementation of FATF and things like it, I'm interested to see where regulators come down on when is a coin a clean coin? How many hops does it need to go through before they well, judge it clean? And who's is it ever clean? And who's responsible? Who's, who's responsible point for to? proving that? Because yeah, sure. uh, if, if, you, if you walked into a branch with uh, £10,000, the branch have to make sure that you have that money legally. Sure. They don't have to make sure that the, each one of those £10 notes that you've got, or the $10 bills or $100 bills, that they had always been used um, for uh, legal purposes throughout their entire existence, whereas that kind of is what's implied in the travel rule a little yeah. bit. And and actually, what does that mean for privacy? If you can see every transaction ever, sure, you're potentially in a, in a quote-unquote anonymous space, but actually in order to be in this space, you have to declare your identity to somebody. Like, is this not the biggest privacy nightmare the world's ever seen? I think you're in a pseudonymous space, and yes, it is the biggest privacy nightmare. And it's just more ammo that this is not the this is not a completely fit for purpose solution. But no one's come up with a better idea. Mm. We are in that sort of transitional world where most of these things are coming about because we've got these kind of on and off points between the crypto world mm. and the blockchain world yeah. and, the, and the world of traditional fiat currency. Sure. And so, you know, what is a crypto exchange? Sure, it only exists maybe because you want to exchange different types of cryptocurrency, but most likely people want to eventually use um, that asset and change it back into their own currency because they want to pay for something or they want to buy something. Um, And so, you know, you've got that kind of problem of, you know, in order to comply with the regulation, the the government's role is to to keep the public safe. So it's consumer protection, but it's also to prevent crime. So, you know, those were the biggest accusations thrown at at Libra was, you know, kind of money laundering, privacy, consumer protection. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to answer all these questions. If we're going to have a sort of global digital currency run by a large company, um, we can't just sort of let that be a free for all um, because, you know, consumers could lose their money if the company is badly managed, but also, um, you know, there could be a lot of nefarious 
various things going on if you can just send very quick payments in Facebook Messenger or whatever and use that to, to buy things that the government doesn't want you to if buy. If only there was a privacy-preserving way of uh, attesting <laughs> that things were legitimate transactions that we knew who the person was without revealing their underlying identity, like, for example, <laughs> a blockchain-based ID system. Um, but obviously, that's overselling it a little bit. But the story here comes from Finextra, and it's about a system for credit union members that has been made commercially available. So CU Ledger is making Digital Identity Service Member Pass commercially available. And it's actually developed by credit union-owned CU Ledger. Uh, Member Pass is a KYC-compliant, member-controlled, interoperable, decentralized, is it decentralized? digital <laughs> credential. Uh, or is it distributed? Distributed, yeah. <laughs> It uses um, a, basically a peer-to-peer network of distributed private agents working in parallel uh, with the distributed ledger to give credit union members a lifetime portable digital ID. And during pilots, the uh, credit unions use the system at their call center operations for high-risk transactions. Members verify their identities using their voice, fingerprint, or facial recognition or other biometric systems. And the, the CEO actually said previous pilots showcased uh, the need in the industry and how members can benefit from heightened security. Uh, allowing members to have to control of their information also gives them a sense of security. There's something really nice in this identity space about re-architecting the ownership of data and information back in the hands of the individual, them being able to make attestments, but also data being able to move left and right between um, financial institutions, but only when I let that happen, which was surely the point of GDPR originally. Yeah, and the moving of data in a trustless way. So... This, this is a fantastic implementation uh, using distributed ledger and a peer-to-peer type environment. But the, the, the concept of making your ID and documents associated with that, uh, making it more sovereign uh, is absolutely fantastic. And uh, it, it's, it, it, it's a great project for sure. Uh, Dave Birch has been saying for a while, identity is the new money, Helen. Um, these things, though, have been around for quite some time. They never seem to quite gain traction. They, yeah. It's kind of like we all know we want Christmas, but we can never have it. Yeah, well, it's sort of, um, I guess, the next layer for me after the kind of protocol layer is the ID layer, you know. So we've now got um, kind of enterprise-level protocols that can work. I mean, building a, a central bank digital currency using R3 Corda, you know, it can be made to work. Um but the identity part is the next part. If you're going to do a lot of these other decentralized applications, you kind of need to know who somebody is or they need to be able to control the things that they own, whether it's digital assets, whether it's their data, whatever it is. So, you know, the, the faster we move this on and away from the conception of ID being sort of given to us through government documentation, that will then, you know, mm. lead to a lot of different applications and services that we don't have now. But, you know, when when the regulators look at this, that the way they see identity as being given is through their permission to us to have a passport or to have a driving license or to have a government issued document that represents who we are and the fact that we exist and we can access government services. But obviously our identity is potentially just our, our biology. So a scan of our iris or, you know, a thumbprint or, you know, many things that we do now, it's higher security for me to use Apple Pay because I put my thumbprint on my phone than it is for me to use contactless cards. Mm. But that's an interesting so, example know. when you put your thumbprint on your phone. The key for that is stored in the device itself and mm. it sends an attestation back to Apple that this was indeed correct. It mm. doesn't send the key or your biometrics anywhere beyond that device. Yeah. And actually there's, there's an operational security and resilience point there about... Um, we're moving away from paper documents that could be easily forged. So when um, FATF are saying, actually, no crypto exchanges, you should send paper documents between each other, is that the optimal solution? And are we missing a giant opportunity here? Um, or are these blockchain ID systems just so highfalutin and so hard to actually implement once you get into the nitty gritty that it's you know, the impractical and less perfect solution is is what they're having to go with um, just because it's it's a tool that they've got versus... Because it works now. Yeah. yeah. I but think it's it, a really imperfect solution, but it's probably the solution we've got for the time being, but it's yeah. very onerous on companies that are in an innovative environment who know it 
could be done better, but the tools are not quite there for them to do it in oh, the new but way. But the tools in an Estonia or Scandinavia or even China or India would be there. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be this idealized view of the world to, to get there. Mm. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if uh, if there's some standards around data privacy and identity that, that could start to emerge. That could be, could be hugely interesting. And I also don't understand where things like zero-knowledge proofs come in because I know some firms are building ID solutions where you can uh, you can self-sovereign own lots of information about yourself and people can reference it and be sent it but trust it because of the use of zero-knowledge proofs. It's it's out of my understanding zone, but I know people are working on that as well. Which I'd love seems to, to see a picture of your understanding zone. <laughs> of like, like, is this just around London? What's inside it and what's not? Yeah. Um, I like the mostly idea. Mostly accounting, zone one actually. Zone two. Yeah. Mostly, mostly uh, accounting. Uh, but, but it's interesting. So zero-knowledge proofs to, to grossly um, uh, kind of butcher a metaphor is the idea that um, there's, there's a good story a friend of the show Maya Zahavi used to talk about um, and uh, Maya's uh, been involved in zero knowledge proofs for a long time space alien levels of intelligence but she talks about uh, there was a, a, a New York library in which uh, some pranksters had gone into this library and they'd replaced all the Where's Waldo books with books of Where's Waldo with no Waldo in it Right. Um, so these kids <laughs> couldn't find Waldo, or if you're in the UK, Wally, and they were starting to cry because they could never find it. So they developed a system where they could prove that Waldo was in fact there without revealing where Waldo was. Okay. And it was just like a little registration system. We have checked this book on a daily basis. We, it's not been replaced. Waldo is there. This is kid safe. And that's sort of a zero-knowledge proof. I can prove it's there. It's basically a glorified one-way hash function. But uh, I can prove that it's there. Um, but uh, I haven't revealed the underlying data set. So I can prove you're over 18, but I've not given away your date of birth. Things like that are actually quite helpful, um, but how much that can be used, and you know, it's at the bleeding edge of technology, some of this stuff, and how well understood that is uh, becomes a different question entirely. And how it scales, mm. as with lots of these things in this space, how it scales beyond a test yeah, Absolutely. I mean, many of the blockchain-based ID solutions at the moment are based on still uploading mm, exactly. a passport or, you know, using existing um, identity checkers to see if someone's on a, a list, um, you know, money laundering list and so on. And so even though they sort of claim to give you a, a kind of self-sovereign identity that's reusable in reality, they are kind of basing their systems around, you know, more old-fashioned forms of identity verification. And, and a lot of them are researching this kind of zero-knowledge proof idea and sort of trying to create this kind of Chinese wall where, you know, I've got enough information about Simon to know that he's Simon, but I don't necessarily know that it's definitely you, but we can trust each other and I can and sort of share some information about you. What information do I need to be able to transact? All right, uh, lots of stories this week. There are some stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, first story we didn't have time to cover is that a lawsuit that Ripple says could tank XRP will move forward, according to a judge. Um, actor Steven Seagal has been charged with unlawfully touting a digital asset offering. Um, his digital asset offering was hard to kill. Um, and he has been under siege this week. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had to, right? It's Too just, much bro talk. Sorry, guys. It's, it, it's, it's just bad movie references were essential. When Steven Seagal's involved, I, I don't like know I if that's bro talk. I feel like I need to make a rom-com joke now. <laughs> yeah. Dude, bring it in. <laughs> Is Steven Seagal in any rom-coms? That would be the mashup I'd Maybe yeah. someone in like Russia or sadly. somewhere like that. I know he's a fan of that country, so maybe oh, he's well. branched out. Stories we also didn't have time to cover. Um, <laughs> Ex-Microsoft employee convicted of 18 felonies in a digital currency scheme. And uh, China's digital yuan research team uh, delayed amid coronavirus epidemic. Uh, not the team the actual research, which was the point you were making earlier, and that uh, it's all well and good having to try to have a digital currency, but then some reality comes and gives you a virus. Uh, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from the one and only Mike Dudas. Shout out to M. Dudas on Twitter. Uh, he says... I've worked in fintech since 2009 with Google Wallet. We're in the midst of the bubble to end all bubbles. Founders, sell your thing to a big financial institution ASAP. So we have a founder in the room. <laughs> I'm trying. Uh, are, we, okay. are we in the bubble to end all bubbles? And um, is, is fintech over? Is blockchain over? Is crypto dead? I think fintech is uh, demonstrating uh, some massive deals that you would see at the end of a bull market. And... 
10 to 12 years of central banks printing money and it filtering through the system. When I look at crypto and blockchain, having uh, been a founder of a business for two years and uh, been talking to people in the UK and the US, it's definitely been a bit of a crypto winter. I think there, there were lots of deals done in 2017 and early 2018 that were a bull market and the top of the market. So I think things have definitely cooled off since then in the world of crypto and blockchain. Uh, but fintech, generally, you see these huge multi, multi, multi-billion dollar acquisitions. And I, I imagine those are the kinds of things that have triggered this tweet from Mike. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's just Revolut lots just of had money. had a massive raise exactly. as well. Uh, you know, sort of uh, Robin Hood and uh, Acorns are out there in an absolute huge way in the US. I mean, Helen... Uh, fintech and crypto in different places? Yeah, I mean, certainly blockchain seems quite a long way behind some of those numbers in terms of deals being done. But I do think um, we're sort of coming back a little bit this year. It feels like last year was very, very tough. A lot of startups in the UK certainly kind of retrenched, closed down, moved away, um, you know, sort of just fell by the wayside. But I think um, some of the bigger projects, especially on the kind of protocol level, are starting to make more inroads. Um, you've had kind of big announcements from things like Hedera, you know, partnering up with Google Cloud. And there's some sort of bigger kind of marketplace developments going on. But sort of for the, the kind of decentralized applications in the startup level, it's it's pretty sort of quiet, I think, right now. People are trying to just build person works hard doesn't make a great headline, but it is really what's going on. But actually, if you ignore this stuff, you're going to miss out on what's going to be really big in five to ten years, potentially. I think that's, that's right. Interesting. And it's a, it's a tale as old as time that you'll get startups that will be able to move quicker than incumbents, raise money, and then the incumbent will buy them out. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, after ten years of a bull market and lots of cheap money, free money, and lots of lots of dry powder in VC firms and private equity firms, you see these these very aggressive valuations. And will it all come off? Probably. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a perfect opportunity to plug our sister podcast. If you're interested in fintech, do check out Fintech Insider. Uh, and you could subscribe to Fintech Insider on your favorite podcast app for weekly news breakdown, industry interviews, and insights on all things fintech. And uh, that actually wraps up this week's show. So just to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by the fine, fine folks here at 11FS. Uh, we are a challenger consultancy and product company working to shape the future and the very fabric of financial services. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Matt? So the website for Archax is www.archax.com. You can send me an email, matthew at archax.com. We are a startup that's been around two years, specifically going after permissions with the regulator to be a broker, a custodian, and a regulated exchange for securities that exist on blockchain. Thank you very much. And Helen? As for me, you can find me at unblockedevents.com or for the GovChain research, it's govchain.world. I'm also on Twitter at unblockedevents or at GovChain Research. Thank you so much. And as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or you can find me uh, by emailing me directly, Simon at 11FS.com. A big thank you as always to our amazing production team here at 11FS. Uh, of course, our producers, Laura, Petra, Olivia and sound guys, uh, Alex and George. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider in the next two weeks. Goodbye for now. <laughs>